Isaiah 63, beginning at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage, your holy people possessed, your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who were not called by your name. Chapter 64, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Amen. Now, we see at the end of Isaiah chapter 63 that the church in the Old Testament is in a very poor condition. Isaiah here is calling on the Lord to look down from heaven and to look uh, upon the people. He asks, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? God does not seem to be doing much for his people. In fact, as God has withdrawn from his people, the condition of the people has grown worse. Notice here he asks whether the stirrings of God's heart and compassion are restrained somehow from the people of God. They are the people of God. They know that Abraham is their father, he says, and Israel, of course, is one of the patriarchs, but they do not recognize them. Well, why is that? Well, probably because the people have strayed from the Lord and they do not have the faith of the patriarchs. But here's the hope. He says, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name at the end of verse 16. He says, even though we have backslidden away from our God, nevertheless, God is still our covenant God and we can call upon him. And he asked the Lord, why does the Lord cause us to stray? Why are our hearts being hardened from fearing you? That is, why is there so much disobedience? In the nation, why are so many people turning away from God when they are the covenant nation among all the nations of the earth? And he says in verse 17, line C, return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. He's saying, come, Lord, for the sake of your people, come and bless us, come and draw near to us, soften our hearts, put us back in the way of righteousness. Don't let us stray like sheep away from you. He says, your holy people possessed your sanctuary for a little while. Our adversaries have trodden it down. The, the condition of the temple is uh, fallen into disrepair. And the, the people have become like any other nation in the world. He says, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled. That is like a pagan nation, like those who were not called by your name. So that's the backdrop of what we find when we come into chapter 64. And here we see that Isaiah 
prays for what we might call revival. That is a visitation from the Lord among his people. And he prays for several things. Number one, he prays in verse one that the Lord would visit in demonstrative power, that the Lord would visit in demonstrative power. Secondly, in verse two, a he prays that uh, or prays that the revival would come and it would be like fire, that the, the revival would be as fire among them. And then thirdly, that the revival to make uh, the revival would be of such character that it would make God's name known even among unbelievers, that the revival would spill over from the church proper to those who are outside of the church. And then fourthly, that the revival would bring awesome and unexpected blessings. So we're going to look at those four points here from these three verses. So let's look and first of all, consider that revival uh, in verse one is a visitation from the Lord in demonstrative powers. Look at verse one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence here. So what is Isaiah praying, boys and girls? Well, he's praying here for a demonstrative. That's something that you could see with your eyes. Uh, a demonstrative exhibition of divine power that could be easily witnessed by others. Isaiah wants this to be clear, as clear as it was at Sinai. Now, that was clear, wasn't it? Remember, boys and girls, when uh, God came down to the mountain, they even had to quarantine the mountain. Nobody was allowed to go near the mountain except for Moses, right? No animal could even go. If an animal touched uh, Sinai, they had to stone the animal, kill the animal. And here, uh, Isaiah is saying, Lord, I want you to do something great like you did in the days of old, in the days of Moses, when you made a covenant with your people, you came down with cloud and with thunder and you caused the very Mount of Sinai to shake. And you spoke with this voice that caused the people to fear. And they said, we can't take this anymore. You know, friends, we need to be prepared for that. Sometimes revival is not what we think it is. Many times revival is very unpleasant because what happens in revival is God begins to reveal the sins of men to themselves, And in revival, those sins, uh, terrible as they often are, come out. It's not a matter of if you will confess your sins. You will confess those sins uh, when there is a tremendous uh, revival taking place. I encourage you to read from uh, Bruce Hunt, our own OPC missionary from the World War II generation, uh, who uh, witnessed revival uh, in the Korean Pentecost, as it was called, and uh, terrible uh, sins being publicly confessed in the services because the presence of God was uh, so near that men could not help but uh, uh, acknowledge their wrongdoings and, and ask God for mercy and pleading the blood of Jesus Christ to forgive uh, those sins. It's interesting, Bruce Hunt said he, he saw this and, and, and there was a part of him that never wanted to see it again uh, because 
the Lord had moved so powerfully uh, among among the congregation and, and the most wretched and terrible things were were openly being acknowledged and confessed because God was doing such a mighty work. God here is being implored to come down like he did in the days of Moses. Um, when the holiness of God descends on a congregation, um, several things happen. Number one, you become aware of the presence of God, the holiness of God. And when the holiness of God is felt, then also the accompanying sin that is within us is felt more pronouncedly. You see this in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord and the seraphim are crying out, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And notice that Isaiah's own reaction was the sinfulness of his lips. Now, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Uh, and the lips on being unclean was just a symbol really of the pollution of his life and his heart. You know, out of the out of the mouth comes what's in the heart. So Isaiah, nevertheless, is boldly asking for the nearness of the Lord, that the Lord would draw near to his people again in such power. He wants to see the sanctuary restored to its days of glory. When Solomon dedicated the temple and the fire from heaven, you'll remember, fell upon the altar, the glory of the Lord filled the house in such a way that even the priests were not able and, and I encourage you to read that sometime in your spare time. Second Chronicles, chapter seven, uh, the first opening verses, verses one through three. And, and you see the, the Lord coming down. So the, the, the idea here, the theme is that uh, uh, is the reviving presence, the nearness of God. That is what revival is. Revival, as many of you have heard me say over the years, is not simply putting a series of meetings on the calendar and calling it revival. Now, that may be a blessing to have a series of meetings, and I'm all for having a series of meetings, and I'm all for having conferences and such, but God determines whether it's genuine revival or not, not we. we, we man does not say, you know, we're having revival. God will do it, and God doesn't have to do a series of meetings. Now, what often happens, I think the reason that churches have a series of meetings and call it revival is because that is what happened in revival in the past. God does come. And then what happens? People want to begin to meet more and more for the word of God. There's a hunger for God. There's a hunger to hear more preaching. And, and so the ministers, you know, have to uh, satisfy the demands for that. And the people don't want to go away. You know, there's that the revival that took place in the 19th century in Charleston, South Carolina. And I think it was under uh, Gerardo's ministry. And Gerardo was praying for revival. The congregation had been praying for revival and the spirit of the Lord came upon the congregation so powerfully. Everybody could feel the presence of the Lord and the stillness of the Lord in the midst of the meeting. And, and when the benediction was given, nobody left. And they were, Jared, I didn't know exactly what to do. And, and they said, well, I think it's time now. And, and so they commenced preaching, you know, right then and, and there. I mean, the, the service was supposed to be over, you know, and the benediction was supposed to be given. And. And, and yet uh, the people weren't going to go anywhere. We, they, they wanted to hear the preaching. God had come in answer to their prayers. And now they wanted uh, the, the preached word. Uh, notice that the emphasis here by Isaiah is on the presence of the Lord. Rend the heavens and come down. Uh, it's not just that he wants to see mountains quake. 
He doesn't want just the, the, the theatrics. But what does he want? He wants God himself. Isaiah is praying for the nearness of God. Why? Because the psalmist tells us the nearness of God is our good. That is what heaven is. It is the nearness of God. What made the garden so wonderful? It was the place where God would come and walk with Adam and Eve. What was the significance and the importance of the tabernacle in the wilderness? It was the place where God's presence was. What's the significance of the temple? That's where God's name dwelt. What's the significance of the incarnation that we are celebrating this month? It's God, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. It's the presence of the Lord. What's the significance of Jesus' prayer when he teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come? It's that God would be pleased to exercise the kingdom of his power in all the world, that God would come down. His power would be in the world. That, as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, is the greatest need of our day. And if it be true in the late 20th century when Lloyd-Jones said that, or mid-20th century, how much more today? Dr. Isaac Watts and Dr. John Gies wrote a preface uh, many years ago to the works of Jonathan Edwards to, I should say, the work of Edwards called A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Listen to what uh, Watts and Gies say about that quote. We are taught also by this happy event that is the Great Awakening that had broken out in New England in the 18th century, we are taught by this happy event how easy it will be for our blessed Lord to make full accomplishment of all his predictions concerning his kingdom and to spread his dominion from sea to sea through all the nations of the earth. We see how easy it is with one turn of his hand, with one word of his mouth to awaken whole countries of stupid and sleeping sinners and kindle divine life in their souls. Edwards, in his own book, notes several things. First of all, he said in this town of Northampton, you had about 200 families. And there would have been about 82 years of history uh, since the founding of that community in Massachusetts, western Massachusetts. And... Uh, this, this was the first time they had awakening under Edwards. Now, they had had awakenings before, especially under his grandfather, uh, Solomon Stoddard. Edwards, you'll remember, in those 82 years of history, Edwards was their third minister at Northampton. Uh, Eliezer Mather was the first. Solomon Stoddard, Edwards' grandfather, that is his mother's dad, was the second minister, and he had a he had a uh, he had five seasons of revival um, in in, uh, in his ministry. Um, the first one was 57 years before Edwards took the pastorate, and then 53 years, 40 years, 24 years, and then 18 years. So by the time Edwards gets there, it's been almost two decades since there was a great and powerful movement of the Lord. In that community, Edwards uh, was with Stoddard for two years before Stoddard died. Um, just after Stoddard dies, the, the, there seemed to be a tremendous dullness in religion, Edwards notes, um, that his first couple years in the ministry weren't going 
all that great. Um, there was licentiousness uh, for some years. It was greatly prevailing among the youth of the town. They were given to what was called night walking or frequenting the tavern and lewd places uh, wherein Edward says by their example, they corrupted others. Um, he also said that they called their meetings of mirth, quote unquote, frolics. The other problem was family government was failing. Uh, Edward says family government, quote, did too much fail the town. That is, parents were not doing a good job of keeping order in their homes. Um, it had become customary, says Edwards, for many young people in the congregation to be indecent in their carriage at worship services. Um, some historians have suspected that, that Stoddard, Solomon Stoddard's uh, aged eyesight also contributed to that, that he couldn't tell necessarily that there was a lot of misbehavior going on out there among the young people and wasn't, you know, correcting it uh, from the pulpit, as your pastor has on occasion to do now and then. So I'm told. And uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, but whatever, that, this was just to tell you what was going on. And in addition to that, there was a party spirit in the town between two camps with regard to the public affairs of the, of the town. And there was a lot of opposition and jealousy. So this was the kind of the state of things towards the end of 1733. Uh, and then at the end of that year, at the end of 1733, there was what Edwards called, quote, a sensible amendment of these evils. A sensible amendment of these evils. Now, what happened, you say? It's interesting. The first place where we saw things begin to change was actually among the young people. That the young people began to show a greater disposition, Edward said, towards hearkening unto counsel and flexibleness and yielding to advice. So that the first place we begin to see God really moving in Northampton again was in the disposition of, of the teenagers and the young people. They were beginning to listen to their parents, showing greater respect uh, and willingness to follow what the parents were saying. Edward says that the young people on their own began to quit their practice of frolicking after the Sabbath, that is after Sunday night. And parents did not have to really persuade them to drop the practice Young people already were persuaded on their own to do it. So God was really beginning this revival in a very unexpected way with the youngest of the members. Then Edward says that there were a few people who were nearby savingly wrought upon. That is, it seems like in another community, but yet still close. There were a couple people who got saved and word of that. Spread, you know, you know, that's kind of in a way how I came to Christ. One of the ways I came to Christ was one of my good friends and hallmates came to Christ. And people were telling me about it in this club that I was in. We were in this club and we were officers together and they said, hey, uh, did you hear John Eckford became a Christian? And and I, I, I ran into John on campus. I said, hey, I heard you became a Christian. Why'd you do that? And he said, let's go to lunch. And he gave me R.C. scroll tapes and the rest was history, you know. So um, so something similar began to happen. A couple of people got converted and people are hearing of that and it's affecting other young people in the town. In addition to that, providentially, there were a couple of deaths uh, that happened. A young man and a young married woman uh, died in the community. And that had a profound effect. It shook people that 
people who were ordinarily so young and healthy should suddenly be taken away. And these two things kind of converged together. And a seriousness began to develop among the young people. So Jonathan Edwards proposed that the young people begin to meet in what he called social religion in the evening after the worship was concluded. That is, kind of have a small group meeting, what we would call a small group meeting after evening church. And the practice continued. And then he said the adults began to follow suit. They, after church, began to have their own social religious meetings as well. Something else began to happen when God began to move in Northampton. And that is theological, theological purity was reintroduced. There, there was this turning away from Calvinism to Arminianism. The gospel was weakened, being weakened theologically in New England. And, um, and it was threatening really the whole of, of New England. Um, and many people turned away from that. Arminianism during that time, people began to become fearful that God would remove his hand of blessing and that they would be led down, quote, by this, quote, bypath. They saw Arminianism as a bypath to to the gospel. Today, it's mainstream evangelicalism. But back then, they saw it for the heterodoxy that it was. And Edwards says that um, that they were afraid that God would give them over to this, quote, heterodoxy and corrupt principles, he said. So in the latter part of December 1733, several individuals are savingly converted in quick succession. You have several people coming to Christ. And the spirit of God had begun to extraordinarily set in on the community. One young woman was saved, which had then a very profound impact on the town. Um, Now, as this was going on, Edwards began to fear, though, that other people in the community would be hardened against God as they began to see people move and become more zealous for the Lord and to turn to the Lord and turn away from their sins. He was concerned about the people who were unmoved by what was going on and that they they would be left in a condition worse than if this revival had never taken place. Edward says this on page 348 of his book, he says, quote, Great and earnest concern about the great things of religion and the eternal world became universal in all parts of the town. That is, Edwards is saying here is that this became really the conversation of the community. Everybody began to talk about the things of the Lord everywhere they were going. And and again, you know, if I can chime in, you know, just from my own experience, when we had, I wouldn't call it a revival at Davidson, but I would say that there was this visitation. And and it, it would be as though uh, you spent the whole day talking about the things of the Lord, you know, to and from class and um, going, you know, to the cafeteria or, uh, you know, to the sports field or wherever. It just um, and it was not widespread. I'm not saying it was widespread at all, but but among those that were moved by by that, the Christians that were affected by it, um, this did happen. Um, Edwards goes on to say that it was among all the persons uh, in the community, all degrees and all ages, all social stations. It wasn't just the movement of uh, the middle class or the lower middle class or the upper middle. It was, it was every station in life, all ages seemed to be equally affected by the things that the Lord was doing in Northampton. 
Conversation in the town was, as Edwards notes, was almost always about the things of the Lord. Unless, he says, quote, as was necessary for people to carry on their ordinary secular business. As, you know, they, 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 they would talk about the things of the Lord except when they absolutely had to talk about something else in order to get some business done. He says other discourses would scarcely be tolerated in any company. The minds of the people were wonderfully taken off from the world. The temptation, Edwards noted, now seemed to lie with neglecting worldly affairs. Can you imagine? Yet the people did not neglect their worldly business in the midst of it all. The only thing, quote, this is a quote again, the only thing in their view was to get the, he- the kingdom of heaven and everyone appeared to be pressing into it. So there's a historical narrative, if you will, of I think what Isaiah is saying he wants here. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And that's what we need in LaGrange and, and Troop County. And, and uh, that's what we need all over. Um, there are a few parts of the world that I think are experiencing things similar to this right now. Uh, but I, as far as I know, they're not happening in our country. And, and I don't think they're happening in our community. Um, if anything, I think we're kind of going sideways as a church right now. Um, it, I've, and this is not just my perception. I've talked, you know, for example, with the Troop County Baptist coordinator. And he said, yeah, our baptisms are pretty much basically what would our infant baptisms be? Covenant kids getting baptized, you know, what we would call covenant kids, uh, kids within their own congregation getting baptized, but nothing more. It's kind of this plateau. Um, the, the trouble is, is that, you know, as a nation, even if the church is kind of being sustained, we're not declining like the mainline denominations are. Okay, that's the good news. Okay, um, the bad news is that the population still is growing. So we're becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of the overall population because we're not growing to the, to the degree that that um, that the nation is. Now the OPC has been growing a little bit. I don't want to say we've been flat, and the PCA has been growing a little bit. Um, but not seemingly like what we're reading about here in, in Northampton. So we need to pray um, that the Lord would rend the heavens and come down. I mean, that, that's what we need to do. The first, and if I had only one application, that would be it, <laughs> is plead with God to visit. Plead with God for the Holy Spirit to move. And... Plead with the Lord. And they're, they're great and wonderful stories. Uh, any of you who have studied this theme before, um, there are many wonderful accounts. Uh, you know, I love, you've heard me tell the story of the Isle of Lewis that begins with two uh, elderly, very elderly, homebound women, sisters, two sisters. I think one of them was blind, if I remember correctly. One of the sisters was blind and the other, I think, had really, really bad arthritis, couldn't, couldn't get out. Uh, but these women were uh, prayer warriors to the nth degree. And they prayed 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 and they prayed. So those of you, my fellow singles, uh, those of you who are widows, don't don't despise utterly your condition in this world. There is a, the advantage that you have this opportunity 
uh, not having the responsibilities that others in families do, we do have the opportunity to beseech the Lord in ways I think others don't. So um, I, I just say that as a way of encouragement to those of you who may be in a station of life uh, such as myself where you find yourself living on your own. Wonderful opportunity really to call upon the Lord um, in ways that if I had little kids, I probably wouldn't have all that time to do. So uh, plead with the Lord. Well, anyway, God answers the prayers, long story short, these two elderly women in the Isle of Lewis. In case you're wondering where I'm talking about, it's a little island off the coast of Scotland. It's a part of Scotland, but it's an island of Scotland. And uh, long story short, a man comes and these two women basically say that, you know, you're the guy. And he's like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm busy. I got other things to do. And he goes off and he gets convicted while he's off doing these other things that, yeah, I am the guy. And I'm supposed to go back. And he starts preaching. Uh, Reverend Minister, Reverend Campbell, I believe was his name. So wonderful stories like that. Whenever God moves um, on a community, the first thing he does is he moves people to prayer. Uh, that's the one constant I think we've seen in genuine awakenings and revivals is that that they were often preceded. Uh, by prayer. But I, gotta, I want to keep moving. We're going to be running late here. Verse 2. Revival is compared to fire. Notice here. Um, in verse 2. As fire kindles the brushwood. As fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations may tremble at your presence. That is they want God to come down like a mighty fire. And it's interesting that historically. The one thing that revival is often compared to. Is fire. And and you'll see this historically where you'll have a community that is visited by the Lord and there's an awakening there. And you'll have, as at all times, people traveling and people who are in that community, they come under the influence of the Holy Spirit and catch the fire, if you will, and go to their own community. And then it breaks out there so that there are you and you'll see people historically writing about it. And the best that they can do to, to make the comparison is this comparison to fire. Fire here is mentioned that it begins to kindle dry brushwood and causes the water to boil. The flame spreads over the brushwood and it becomes larger and more intense. You think about wildfires, maybe in out west, California has had their trouble this past year with, with those fires. This is a fire that even can cause water to boil. Uh, the water is room temperature, but it begins to heat and little bubbles form along the bottom of the pot as the pot is heated from below. And the bubbles then begin to slowly move, some of them popping up to the surface as the water continues to heat. And soon the water is convulsing with some small violence. And so it is with revival. Revival is the work of the spirit where suddenly uh, that moves quickly from one to another group at a time. Begins often in the church, but it is usually not contained within the church. It begins to burn in the lives of others outside of the church, and they are added savingly to the church. In other places, the Spirit's ministry is compared to that of the wind. The wind comes and the wind goes as he will. We don't command the wind to come and go. We can only ask for the Lord to move um, like fire underwater, the reviving influence of the spirit begins dramatic changes. It disrupts the placid water. And it begins to roil and broil, boil. 
And this is the need of our day. Churches, we need theological revival, doctrinal revival, emotional revival, I would argue. Though we don't want to be emotionalists. Ethics, Christian ethics needs reformation. As believers commit themselves and rededicate themselves to the commands of the Lord. As we saw in the young people of Edward's day, committing themselves with regard to the fourth and the fifth commandments, obeying their parents, observing the Sabbath more closely. Sabbath observance is really at a low ebb in the church and the culture today. Most churches have only nine commandments that are required for evangelical obedience, if they even believe in evangelical obedience. Let me move on to the third point. Then we see that revival brings a knowledge of the Lord to the nations. Look at, uh, again, verse 2, line B, the second line. To make your name known to your adversaries. Who are the adversaries? They're the nations, the Gentiles that oppress them. The nations may tremble at your presence. Notice there the, the adversaries in line B are the nations in line C. That the nations would come to the Lord. Revival brings a knowledge of God to others. As evangelism begins to increase, when people are revived, when their hearts are softened and inflamed by the Spirit's work, they begin to get a heart for the plight of the nations. They begin to get concerned about the lost condition of other people. They're no longer like Jonah, asleep in the bottom of the boat while men above are crying out to their gods in ignorance. You know, before God could use Jonah, Jonah needed to be awakened and revived. And the problem, the problem, if, if God was going to save Nineveh, he had to first save Jonah. He had to revive Jonah. Jonah was in a spiritual sluggishness of his own. He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. While a terrible storm is going on and they're likely to perish and Jonah doesn't care. And they even say, don't you care? Why don't you call on your God? The Great Commission in times of revival becomes more significant in the theology of the church and in the practice of the church. There's more talk about the Great Commission. There's a greater desire to see its fulfillment and see obedience on the part of the church to it. And there's a greater expectation to see God at work among the heathen. Part of the problem is we often don't believe that God is going to do a great work. But revival brings greater faith in the promises of God. Now the promises seem doable. Now the promises seem, in a sense, more real that his kingdom will spread. And I I think I, I showed you that in the quote from Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts said, Now that we have heard what's going on in New England, we we can see how easy it is actually for God to do what he's going to say he's going to do among all the nations. It brings greater faith in the promises of God to spread his kingdom to every people group. People pray with greater faith when God brings revival. They latch hold to those promises and they plead those promises more sincerely before God. Let me give you four conclusions here. Number one, as I already mentioned, pray for revival. Pray for the Lord to come down and meet us. Come and build up his church again. Number two, reform your life. Reform and remove any hindrances that there might be in your life to grieving the spirit of God. Examine your ways. Search yourself. 
And see if there's anything that might be displeasing in your life right now. Something that needs to be shored up. A situation that needs to be dealt with. A sin that needs to be confessed. A relationship that needs to be reconciled. What is it? Examine your family's culture and life. Maybe we've allowed ourselves to drift too much in our own government of self and family. We need to tighten up. Number three. Revival is a work of God. God, as we saw this morning, will not share his glory with another. God is the Alpha and the Omega of revival. God uses the instrumentality of men, but it is all of God at work. As the Apostle Paul said, it is not me. I work more than them all, Paul said. (laughs) I work more than Peter. I work more than Thomas. I work more. But he said, but it's not me, but God who works in me. And revival is a work of God. I want you to note here, I had to pass by it relatively quickly, but note the amount of years that passed in between the revivals of Stoddard. Sometimes it was just a couple years, but sometimes it was several years, 13 and a half years or more. Revival is not man-made, it is not manufactured. We only can seek the Lord for it. We need to pray. I've been here now. I'm coming up on 26 years next month. Can you believe that? That's that's a marathon in years. <laughs> um, and and I don't. I, I'm pretty certain we've never seen a revival. Uh, we we need it. And the last thing. Point number four. In conclusion, have confidence in the promises of the Bible. Believe the promises and plead the promises of the Lord. Amen.